Hello and a warm welcome to episode 115 of the Building Sustainability Podcast. My name is Jeffrey Hart and every fortnight join me as I talk to designers, builders, makers, dreamers and doers. Together we can explore the wide world of sustainability in the built environment by talking to wonderful people who are doing excellent things. And today the wonderful person is Paloma Gormley. Paloma is an architect who co-runs Material Cultures, with George Masood and Summer Islam, both of whom are friends of the podcast. Check out their episodes in the show notes. Now, I am a huge fan of material cultures. I think the work they do is, it's so well thought out. It's so deeply researched. The The question of sustainability is, is looked at from, from all the possible angles and really forces you to challenge all of the aspects relating to sustainability. I'm very pleased to have been able to work with them on a few projects. They were the designers on the Waste Age exhibition that I went and clay plastered. Um, I've also done a lovely, lovely earth floor. I'll put a link to um, to the earth floor I did for them. It's an artist studio in London. Beautiful grey clay paired with with unfired bricks and clay plaster on the walls. It is uh, one of the floors I am most proud of, I would say. Um, I should also point you towards their book. It's a little, just a little book, but really covers all of those aspects that I mentioned. Things you would never have dreamed were, were sort of part of the sustainability question. Um, I thoroughly recommend that. It's only a little thing, quick read, but so densely packed with, with things to, to sort of chew over. This episode with Paloma, uh, I've actually snipped it into two. This one runs at about an hour. And then the next one's a slightly smaller one, but it it worked uh, in terms of content uh, just to do the cut there. In the next episode, we talk about clay and we talk about timber and we talk about land. This episode is more focused on materials and particularly regenerative materials. Before the episode, as usual, we'll go through the normal bits. There is thanks to give to Mary who has upgraded her patronage of the podcast. Uh, Mary is now a building sustainability superhero, uh, which means they will be getting a hand-carved wooden spoon. Uh, Hold tight for that, Mary. I will get that to you as soon as possible. Who else is there? Jody Adamson. Oh, Jody is a great friend of mine, uh, one of my favourite people. Jody was actually our apprentice on a couple of the Heartwind builds. Lovely, lovely human being. And if you are looking for a, uh, a carpenter up in Scotland, then definitely check her out. Jodie has also joined at the higher tier, meaning that I will be carving her a spoon. I suspect she's probably already got a spoon from me. Uh, well, this one will be much better because I've got so much better over the last few years. And the final person is Niklavs Krievs. Hopefully I've said that something like right. Uh, welcome aboard, Niklavs. So big thanks to all the new people, all the people that have upgraded. Your your support really means a huge, huge deal to me. Um, there is, Patreon have added a thing where you can join as a free member. Now, I think that's just so that you can sort of create a community. It's, uh, if I'm honest, it's another thing that wants me to create a community. And I, I don't have the time or the inclination um, so anyone that is joining as free members, uh, I'm afraid I'm not going to do anything. 
Um, if you want to support the podcast, it is the paid levels only. And for those paid levels, you get you get bonus content. There's whole bonus episodes, bits and pieces. Last week's guest Jules goes on a big old rant about chalk and hemp. Uh, that's all in the bonus section. So head on over if you want to have a listen to that. It is patreon.com forward slash building sustainability. Uh, what else? Oh, yeah. If you sign up to the patron, then you get 10% off all courses at the Nettlecombe Craft School. I haven't mentioned Nettlecombe Craft School in at least an episode. Uh, yeah. So patrons get a, a discount on the on the courses. Uh, another little reason that you might consider becoming a patron. If this is your first episode, then do head back and listen to one of the 114 other episodes. My recommendations would actually be to start with the other members of Material Cultures, the George Masood and Summer Islam episodes. In those episodes, we were talking about the Waste Age exhibition, as mentioned earlier, and also a research project they'd done looking at the, the impact of building homes with bio-based materials, hemp in that instance, uh, up in Yorkshire. Really fascinating bit of research. And if this is your first episode, then make sure you subscribe and uh, don't miss out on any of the excellent other episodes we've got coming up. Reminder to check out the show notes of this episode, follow up on any of the things that we've talked about. Uh, there's some good links to products and, and books, people we've talked about, uh, materials, some of the projects mentioned. Yeah, if something sounds like something you want to know more about, then head to the show notes and click through the links. And finally, if you get a chance to share this episode, you will be forever my friend. I've actually given up social media for a little while, and so I can't do any of the sharing myself. So I'm really relying on you lot to share this far and wide. Um, I do really appreciate it, and it really does mean that more people get to listen. Okay, that is it for me. I am back at the end to discuss some of the things we've talked about. Um, yeah, that's it. Enjoy Paloma. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Material Cultures was founded in order to bring together low embodied carbon technology, natural materials, bio-based materials, with contemporary modes of construction. And I think there's been a, a siloing of natural materials over the last kind of 50 years or more into the world of kind of heritage or, or a kind of very niche ecological architecture. And what we're hoping to do is um, be part of the kind of conversation around shifting the perception of these materials and, and making them more street, mainstream. So one thing that I um, I really enjoy about your work is the width and the depth of the, the thinking you do in terms of, you know, what is the best material. It's something that I've I always trying to do is you know find the the absolute best, and then I read your book and realised that I was not looking you know half hard enough. Um, yeah, I think it's it's really really impressive just how how broad your sort of view of I don't want to say sustainability because I don't think that's enough, but yeah, is that is that a conscious a conscious thing from you? I guess so, or maybe it's just a kind of unravelling of things. <laughs> um, in, in that once you start down this path, it's very hard to stop um, because you, the layers just keep unfolding um, of, of complexity and, um, yeah. Uh, also, I think, yeah, we're increasingly kind of moving into the political context and social Contexts that frame a lot of these ideas and materials themselves. Um, but yeah, to, maybe to explain a little, the way we um, design buildings that so were mostly kind of trained architects in office. So primarily, I think we all see ourselves as designers and makers of buildings. Um, so that was our first entry point in many ways to this, this kind of question um, of materiality is kind of working to specify better materials in buildings. Um, but then increasingly we also carry out research. So we um, do a lot of thinking around effectively scaling up these materials and understanding what impact that might have on the economy, understanding what impact it might have on, on labour, and then importantly for us on, on landscapes. Um, we also work with universities, which I think also gives that um, scope for the a place, a home for the unravelling, um, because universities are really great places for thinking and inquiring ways in this kind of space and time to do that. Um, so I think that's been very enabling, working with students to really interrogate where things come from and yeah, what, what impact they have and how we can navigate making decisions around what materials might be in buildings and what materials maybe shouldn't be. Brilliant. When we spoke the other day, you you said that um, you know, we, we want to be building with plant-based materials and I thought that was an interesting choice of words. I mean, lots of people have different ways of saying the same thing, like Craig, Craig White will say renewable materials. Mm. Um bio-based we use all the words um 
And maybe it depends on context and audience, which ones you end up gravitating towards. Mm -hmm. um, we just did a standing bid and exclusively used the word regenerative because it felt like the appropriate word, although that word is maybe the most complicated of all of them mm. um, and gets bandied around with great abandon, I think. Um, so I think, that, yeah, it's important to be quite careful and always caveat the use of that word, particularly, because I, there is no such thing, I don't think, as regen regenerative materials, but there, there are materials that can come from regenerative sources. There's something very nice about plant-based, um, because it is, it is, it's very direct and straightforward, and, and but also, you know, roots you back direct, very immediately and directly to the idea of these are things that are growing and we depend on in many other ways and that are very kind of simple, well, it's not true, but, you know, they're, they're familiar at least, um, for instance. Um, Bio-based always feels a bit of a kind of cover-up, like a techifying, um, but again, can be useful depending on the context. But it, I feel like bio-based is slightly about kind of obscuring the reality. Mm. Is that because of the based bit? So, or Maybe. As in like it's it's you know it could be uh, stuff, natural materials, plant-based materials set in some sort of resin and say, oh, it's bio-based. Yes, but I guess so could plant-based. Yeah, but I, I think the so. bio biological. I guess that things that are biological can still be highly processed. And maybe we're getting to the same conclusion. Mm. Um, whereas generally, I guess the association with plant-based materials is that they're relatively unprocessed and just quite planty. One thing I thought was interesting about it is the parallel to food. It's quite a common term in the... Um, yeah, in the sort of food industry, people identify themselves as, you know, I eat plant-based. Um, yeah, and I think a lot of the materials that we're talking about might actually come from from a, a sort of food uh, place. Mm. I struggle mm -hmm. to find the right word there. System, yes. probably. Food system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, most of the materials that we think will probably be the most important materials in the next era are effectively kind of secondary products from the production of, of grains or seeds. So basically straws, but, you know, at the one end of the scale, um, maybe one end of the carbon scale in terms of sequestration, you have plants like hemp, which are really efficient at sequestering carbon out of the atmosphere and and both kind of locking it into the soil through these very long tap roots that the plant has, but also holding it in the plant. But, but hemp is grown primarily um, for its seeds, for its oils. Um, and the again, it's a kind of waste product. Well, it's not really a waste product, but the, the, the stem secondary product um which is useful in construction and and other industries because hemp has this kind of dual quality of also having amazing fiber um 
yeah, and then you have all your kind of oats and wheats and barley, um, all of which have really useful straw um, that has slightly different um, uses. And then things like reed, which I guess aren't a secondary product, but um, in that they don't have a grain associated with them. Um, but they are um, kind of necessary output of um, wetland regeneration. So mm -hmm. wetland regeneration, as we've been learning in a research project that we've been carrying out in, in Berlin or outside Berlin. Um, the, the reed needs to be cut on a yearly cycle in order to help um, rebuild peat peatlands. So... Um, so, yeah, so then you have a, a ready material biomass there. I've done that job, cutting reed, uh, with Alan Jones, the thatcher in uh, in West Wales. Uh, Gosh, famous Alan. Yeah, <laughs> yes, I've tried so many times to get him on the podcast and he's he's not a <laughs> not a fan of uh, mm. of sort of public speaking, but um, which is a shame because he's wonderful. But um, well, maybe we could join you for a reed cutting. Yes, he. I think he's out there doing it now. Oh. Um, I feel like that's the time. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a quick, definitely a great thing to do. I mean, it's in it's in a wetland centre uh, somewhere, sort of near Newport, Wales, uh, the little Newport, um, Carmarthenshire, I guess. Um, and yeah, so my understanding from him was that if you don't cut the reeds, then the wetland will turn into a a dry land essentially and so yeah absolutely necessary and presumably there are loads of wetlands that need managing like that yes loads of existing ones but also um loads that need to be reinstated i think it's been well becoming becoming very clear that the the um draining of the peatlands was a bit of a mistake and um, whilst it provided very fertile soil um it's been disastrous for release of release of carbon. So, pretty much all wetlands are, are also peatlands, um, and the process of draining them and cultivating them for food, generally vegetables, um, effectively starts the process of that carbon being re-released back into the atmosphere. So you have this massive store of carbon being um, lost. So there's a big movement, um, particularly across Europe, to re-wet the wetlands. Mm -hmm. And it's a very simple process, really, of damming and ideally getting the beavers in to do that work because they're very good at it. Um, and, yeah, effectively getting the waterway waterways working how they were before the ditches were dug. Um, and it can happen very quickly from what we've, we've seen. We've visited um, some rewetted, spent quite a lot of time in, in some rewetted peatlands. And yeah, in, in the space of kind of five, ten years, you can have a kind of full ecosystem back up and running and throw in some buffaloes. These wetlands are being remade, rewetted. Which seems like an odd term. Um, 
I love how awkward it is. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, so the, the reeds are starting to grow and they need mm. to be cut. So that is presumably creating this brand new uh, material stream. Yes, exactly. And there's a, there's a few, it's not just reed, there's also a, a few very exciting species of grass um, that include canary grass and a couple of others. Um, but yeah, it, it's actually kind of amazing um, the diversity of things that you can do with with a reed. So we've been exploring those in this work in Germany and, and looking at all the different products that have come that are that have come from Reed and that are either kind of on the market now or, or coming to being developed for the market. So there's um, kind of ready-made wall partition systems, which very simply kind of reeds bound together into kind of large format mats that are about six inches thick. Um, and you can render and plaster directly onto you. Um, they're almost structural. They haven't... They have quite a lot of rigidity. Um, so there are those. There's obviously thatching that you can you can make with reed. Um, we've been testing reed creep. It's a bit slippery. Mm-hmm. Not, um, doesn't quite have the kind of same qualities as hemp. Much more awkward to work with, but still does work. Um, and then reed, kind of thinner reed mat substrates, again for plastering, but kind of over a um, stud frame. Um, and then one of the materials, the kind of wetland materials that's been really exciting and maybe the kind of, maybe even has the most potential, is, is tifa or bulrush. Um, and that plant just has a very particular um, structure to it. So. Whereas the reed is tubular, the the bulrush is, is almost entirely kind of foamy once you mm. once you strip off the outer layer. Bulrush is the one that looks like a sort of sausage on a stick. Is that it's right? a sausage, yeah, exactly. It's a frankfurter and the stick. Um, which that's the seed head. So um, it also at the end of the kind of flowering life completely disintegrates in an extraordinary way, and then. Those fibres from the from the seed head can be added to clay plasters, and mm, one of my favourite things to add to, to plasters. Yes, yeah, yeah. Will told me about this years ago, and I, it just seems so beautifully simple as an idea. I just, yeah. And they're so they're very captivating. I find uh, there's something magical about just how densely packed they are, and how much fibre you get from from one of the the seed pods. Very satisfying. Fiber rocket. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, the people are doing amazing things with with the bulrush or tifa. There's um, some kind of foam like product insulated products that look very much like kind of kingspan polyurethane. Have really good U values. Um, there's sheet materials which may be the most transformative things because um, it's very unusual for a um, sheet material to be both breathable and structural. Mm-hmm. So we've got very used to in kind of contemporary stick framing, building with lightweight timber, 
um, using OSB or plywood and you just um, sheath a building, which means to to basically cover the entire skin with a with a sheets of board. And whilst that's um, kind of yeah, very efficient, lightweight way of making a building, um, it means that you can't have a breathable building because OSB oriented strand board um, contains a lot of glue and doesn't have any breathability. Um, so there's a one material that I'm aware of which is effectively not very far off MDF. It's not a very nice material with which you can create a, bit, a breathing building as in vapor permeable um, but that also has a kind of um, sheathing ability so it gives structural strength and rigidity. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've been desperate to find more. Anyway, there's a there's a TIFA version, um, Bullrush version, which is the TIFA bound with um, a mineral that I think is magnesium. Um, it's quite a thick board. It's about inch and a half. And it provides structural strength. It's insulating and it's vapor permeable. Wow. Um, so not much to look at, but... Um, <laughs> incredibly exciting for architects and builders yeah i think the magnesium is a strange it's a thing i can't quite get my head around actually it doesn't feel like it sits in the that world uh magnesium is the one that you you light on fire and it burns very bright isn't it from my science magnesium oxide is probably what i'm referring to so magnesium oxide is a is a uh, a mineral um that i think is is readily occurring um naturally occurring but i think it's also a byproduct of other industrial processes mm-hmm. I may, you may need to fact check me on this yeah. but um <laughs> it you can get magnesium oxide boards and man, magnesium oxide blocks it's amazingly kind of crisp white material um and conceivably, it's kind of, you know, low carbon. It's, it doesn't involve massive amounts of heat to process it, to form it into blocks. But um, I think its deposits are only in certain parts of the world. So it might be one of those materials that belongs in a certain um, bioregion mm-hmm. and not in others. Nice. I like that. The good, good caveat that. Just because it's great in one place doesn't mean it's great everywhere. Um, that's interesting. I was actually just, I think I just got advertised those big white kind of dry fitting blocks. Um, and I wondered what they were. And mm. that's quite possibly magnesium mm. again. So yes. they they are on their own, not insulating, are they? It's the, the bulrush um, that's adding the... Yes, it's the bulrush, yeah. I mean, so it's very small amount. loads of questions about things you don't that you don't really know about or this the magnesium thing i feel very much on uncertain ground with but it may be i've been very interested in it for a while but i've never done a huge amount of due diligence to to check up on it it's just intriguing because it's another mineral Mm. um that seems to have quite a lot of qualities it was like big in the in the 60s and 70s so Lots of people, because it's also fire resistant, so it has some of the qualities that um, 
God, what's the terrible one called? Asbestos. Has, right. um, uh, and it's quite lightweight and I think quite cheap to produce. Um, so it's intriguing. Anyway, it was it was installed in quite a lot of houses, I think maybe in the Netherlands, and then it's sweated. Mm. Um, so I think it absorbed moisture and held moisture in quite a, a problematic way. Anyway, it, it, it led to kind of quite a lot of mold issues in buildings. But I think they've solved that. Um, so I am intrigued by it. But mm. yes, I'm in no way an expert. And it's probably not a core message in any way. <laughs> okay. I saw something from you which was on your Instagram about people uh, eating a plant and something to do with bioregions. Is that is that where this sort of fits in? Um, yeah. So we, I think maybe off the back of um, beginning to work, we very much worked, uh, our work was contained within the UK for quite a long time. It felt like it was important to begin where we are and within the context that we have a bit of knowledge. But... Yeah, I think doing that work in Germany was a good kind of introduction to Europe and beginning to think on that scale. Um, and then we have been running now over the last three months a, a research unit um, at ETH in Zurich. It's a design studio with guest lecturers there. Um, and the brief for the students has been looking at bioregional systems. So they've each been given or chosen uh, a region and a plant. Um, and then working primarily with that plant, or at least in response to it, they've been developing construction systems for housing um, that also respond to kind of local climate conditions and kind of try to create places that have comfort they don't necessarily need to be within the kind of building regulations of that eco-region but they need to be an appropriate response um, and a kind of considered response so considering the kind of labour um, what kind of work would go into the making of these buildings and um, and how that also what kind of work happens all the way down the supply chain. So from the point of harvest all the way through. Um, to really try to understand building or the design of a building um, as not just this kind of singular event that is completely detached from the source or the processes involved in its components creation. Um, to really understanding it as a kind of, in a way, its own ecosystem, you know, the buildings, um, every building has a corresponding landscape from which its materials were removed or you know, cultivated or um, mined, smelted, <laughs> all of those processes. But the the kind of, impact of these massive global supply chains is to remove us from those realities and 
one of the kind of moves towards shorter supply chains is, um, well, mainly from a kind of carbon point of view, but the, the kind of co-benefit and consequences is that I think we all begin to build a better understanding and relationship um, between how things are made and, and where they come from and, and a sense of responsibility in that process. Mm-hmm. I'm intrigued by that um, that phrase uh, you were talking about, what, what kind of work is created. Is that as in um, trying to avoid jobs which are kind of horrible mining jobs that are, you know, deeply un, unpleasant and unhealthy? Is that the sort of route you're looking at that? Yeah, absolutely. The the material production and construction industry is full of really unhealthy practices um, that put enormous pressure on the on the bodies of those who who work in those industries. And it, it kind of goes all the way along the chain, I think again, you know, from um yes, the point of extraction, um many of the kind of minerals involved in our technology, but yes, also our construction materials are, are directly harm, harmful and toxic to health. Um, and there's very little seeming kind of industry care around ensuring that, that um, those conditions are better, or even that maybe we don't need to extract those materials that are harmful and toxic. Um, and we need to find other ways to live, think about technology. But yes, and then, and then kind of scaling all the way along to the to the factory and the, the site of production and, and those environments, and and then to the the construction site itself. I think it's become very normalised the idea that builders will be exposed to harmful fumes, um, to dust, um, that you know from materials like MDF, which again is um, to lifting things that put an enormous strain on the body. Um, so there are ways of making, um, of changing these things, you know. Um, one of those ways is the actual materials themselves and making sure that we're, we're not working with toxic materials because not only are they having an impact on those that construct them, but they, they also construct with them, but they also have an impact on people then consequently live in the buildings containing those materials, create incredibly poor air quality conditions. And it's a real it's a real un unspoken issue, the issue of indoor air quality mm-hmm. from contemporary materials. Um but yes, also um in kind of labour conditions and one of the things that we toy with but I mean it, our work isn't able to have any direct impact at least not at the moment but it, it you know is the idea of um really leaning into these kind of modern methods of construction and being able to do things off-site in order to improve um working conditions you can have spaces that are really well ventilated that have proper extraction that are safe that are dry that um potentially also promote different kinds of culture on a, on a building site um, that could be more accepting of greater um, 
diversity also of builder. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very predominantly kind of white and male industry and has relatively kind of toxic cultures, which are kind of evident in the, um, in the very sadly high suicide rates among mum builders. Um, and all of that can change and, and, and should change, and I think would also change the way that we build and the kinds of buildings that are possible. Yeah. I've been thinking about that quite a lot recently in terms of just the size of materials, like a 18 mil sheet of ply um, is a big ungainly weight. Uh, mm. And, uh, you know, not everyone can lift one and certainly can't lift them safely or put them down safely, which is often the, the sort of issue. And so just sizing materials or to to be accessible for people uh, for the whole range of people rather than just mm-hmm. you know your sort of archetypal big burly builder yeah or also um building cultures of, of support and working together on site where it, um you know be assumed i think it's you know probably be better for everyone that a sheet of 18 mil is carried by two people yeah um, absolutely and uh you know, I think I imagine there's a lot of um, performing of strength also, which ultimately isn't going to be great for body down the line. And mm-hmm. um, particularly when it's an awkward load, like carrying a sheet of bone your own. Um, yeah. So yeah, but there's, yeah, there's a lot of things that can that would only take very simple adjustments, like halving the sheet, size of a sheet. Or, yeah, there's little cultural shifts, but that would have, I think, a really massive impact. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're trying to do a bit of that work. Um, we've um, got a project called Material Cultures Make, or MC Make, which is um, kind of open to everyone, but I think with the hope that um, we also get... Uh, drawing we're trying to draw in um people in kind of conventional construction um and introduce different types of material you know still construction colleges just teach um concrete block and brick and clay tiles and you know just um these materials which really which we're teaching the next generation, but really we can't afford to be using anymore. Um, doesn't really make sense. So we're hoping to kind of plug some of that gap and um, it feels like what we're doing at the moment, we, we did um, a kind of trial year last year, and we've got another year where we're kind of going to develop from that this year. Um, but as much as anything, I think what we're trying to develop is kind of how we hold that space and how you create a different kind of environment um, for that learning, for that learning to be something that's um, uh, reciprocal rather than just us being instructive that we also learn as people holding, yeah, holding the teaching space. Um, 
and yeah, really responsive and open. Um, and then with the hope that we'll kind of develop a, a kind of form of curriculum, but that will ideally encompass not just, just the content, but the kind of um, that cultural reframing. Mm. I was just talking to a friend of mine about, he's a, an MVQ instructor evaluator. And he was saying, oh, you know, <clears throat> most of our, most of the MVQ level three is health and safety. It's like, you know, health and safety could be such a broad topic in terms of mental health and, you know, mm -hmm. carrying sheet supply between two people and all of that kind of mm -hmm. cultural stuff. Um, it would be great to have that actually taught and reinforced. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Seems like a no-brainer in a way. Um, but yeah, I think uh, in an internal quandary about whether we should be um, just going directly to MBQ and trying to change the syllabus or... Um, be working on the outside and inviting people in to a different kind of world. It's, it's kind of a perennial question for all the work that we do in a way. It's, um, uh, are we prefiguring a different way of doing things and therefore maybe having less compromise but working on a smaller scale? Um, or are we trying to interact with the kind of mainstream systems and therefore probably having to dilute a lot of what we do, but maybe having a broader in impact. And I don't think we've decided which, which way um, necessarily, but when this, yeah, the cultural stuff feels really important and I think that's where it feels easier at least for now to sit on the outside until um till we know exactly what it is mm. feel very clear and confident about what that is and then i think maybe we can take that somewhere <laughs> i feel like those those systems sort of the mvq type systems are um they're quite well set i've i think i've heard of various people trying to sort of get in and you know make them better in in sort of mm. whichever way and come come up against quite a hard struggle um mm. that's not to say that's probably more reason to say that it should be done isn't it <laughs> i i yeah I, I feel your your struggle on that um i'd be mm. interested to see where you end up going um so what the um the uh, MC mate. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a real issue with perception around these materials, and um, often it's um, generally completely misplaced, as you say. Um, so I don't know. I mean, Tom Woolley, um, who is a prolific author of natural materials. Um, 
would say that there's been a very active kind of smear campaign on the front of the um, everything else industries in order to kind of suppress natural materials. And I, I don't know whether that's true or not, but um, I think there's maybe also more just a kind of broader cultural idea of um, problematic ideas of kind of primitive primitivism associated with um, direct, simple, natural and unprocessed materials. Um, and that modernism has allowed us to escape um, that uh, form of kind of primitive existence and we're now living in these technological sophisticated technologically sophisticated better buildings um, and with better systems and better materials um, because they are the result of industrialized processes um, and unfortunately that's all rubbish um, so uh, there needs to be a new smear campaign um, yeah, it's really it's a real shame um, because it's. I think it's been really effective. This um, this idea is mod- what I associate with modernism idea um, that new and industrialising systems are better, materials are better. Um, in most cases, they can be demonstrated not to be. Um, I think yes, there is absolutely a place for concrete steel and glass and um, aluminium and all of those materials are, they are incredible, they have extraordinary value um, and enabling of, of um, really important things. I think we just need to be much, much more careful about how we use them as well and where. I think plastic-based materials I basically think should be completely eliminated, apart from maybe in very specific medical um, context, where there is nothing else that would do the job. Um, mainly because they just have such a toxic, effect, you know, the, the, the uh, once they are in the supply chain and in the um, built world, it's almost impossible to remove them and they just become mm-hmm. pollutants. Um, but, yeah, I don't know how we tell tell these new stories, but I think they need to be told, you know, that we're, we're, we're seeing it all around us, the, the, the kind of fact that most contemporary buildings are mold incubating and the materials that we've retrofitted historic buildings with have created now terrifying consequences in terms of mould um, also. Uh, you know, the issue of concrete and rebar and steel, uh, rusting rebar in schools across the country. Um, all of these materials that are meant to be, um, you know, panacea um, or are meant to have brought us great um, great achievements that just yeah are failing and, and, and causing yeah causing a lot of problems so well I think it's interesting 
at the moment because Kingspan have just released a or announced a hemp product, a hemp bat. And so I was, it sort of went hand in hand with me posting pictures of, of what I was doing. And then I saw Kingspan release their thing and I was reading some of their comments on their, their LinkedIn posts. And it was, yeah, it's all the same things. Mm. But, you know, they've got millions, billions to spend on on promoting this stuff. So it feels like the whole, it feels like a very, I mean, it feels like a very difficult time for me because I've, you know, been very anti-Kingspan and now suddenly they're doing what seems like a good thing and it's confusing my brain as to whether I like them or not. Um, but yeah, it feels like there's there's going to be a very big push for making these products normal and, and dealing with all these sort of um, perception ideas. Yeah, and I think Kingspan have also just bought um, Psycho, which is a wood yes. fiber-based um, insulation manufacturer. Yeah, so it's happening. I mean, all this, yeah, exactly. All this, and it is a kind of conflictual feeling, unfortunately. <laughs> um, uh, because we know that they're a completely socially ir- irresponsible organisation, and that was demonstrated through Grenfell. Um, so it is difficult watching an organisation like that um, move into a space which, um, in which there have been many people working very, very, very earnestly for a very long time, and manufacturers like in the nature in, in in Scotland, who you know are, we, you know, you know that they're motivated very genuinely by by um, kind of ecology and broader sustainability of, of product and what they're doing. Uh, and it's hard not to see it as a cynical, money-making um, move on the part of Kingspan, but at the same time it's the only thing that's actually going to make change happen on, on, on the scale that it needs to. So it's also very exciting. <laughs> it's really... Um, it's so, so confusing. It's so confusing. I don't know where to stand. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, it's a real signal, isn't it, that the that the things that we've been talking about and advocating for for some time are kind of stepping up a gear, and and um, and that that mainstreaming is is happening. Um, but. I guess the question then becomes ever more important. Um, this issue of yeah, in what keep on coming back to culture, um, but yeah, what cultures are going along with that change? Because if we continue, if we can substitute out the high carbon materials and substitute in lower carbon materials, and that will have a big impact. But it would also leave a lot of other issues remaining um, and other issues which I would argue um, this material transition is a real opportunity for change in also Um, so for example how the plants that are going into that product are cultivated is it through an industrialised monocrop system um, with no crop rotation in which uh, the soils are essentially being degenerated, and there is no habitat creation, and da, da, da. and if so, that is only actually 
serving to further kind of ecological disruption. So in our minds, it really absolutely does need to go hand in hand. You know, the, the move towards regenerative, regenerative agriculture or agroecological farming and plant or bio-based materials. And, and if they're not happening hand in hand, then, then that's a real problem. And it needs to also, the transition also needs to happen in, in quite a strategic way. We need to be thinking about where things are growing, um, at what quantities, what the impact is on food systems, for example. And the idea that the kind of economy will work these things out well or equitably, I think, is, is naive and increasingly being shown to be um, unrealistic. And I think the government does recognise it in the, you know, they've um, just put out a, a policy or a statement around how they're approaching timber, forestry and construction um, with an awareness there that there will need to be centralised governmental um, strategy and, and planting um, in order to reach those targets. And I, one of the things we keep on coming back to also in our work is, is, I guess, a need for broader land reform and that kind of underpinning almost everything that we end up talking about, that, um, uh, that so many of these issues come back to how land is managed in this country and more broadly in Europe at least. Um, and that it's, yeah, held very inequitably, it's financialized in a way that is kind of highly unproductive for society. Um, and also in a way which kind of uh, encourages a very, very particular form of industrialized agriculture that is completely unsustainable. Um, so it's been really exciting for us, I think, really understanding how linked the future trajectories of architecture and agriculture are, because it feels like there's a real opportunity for a, quite a strong coalition there um, in terms of the voice, those voices coming together. Um, and also to give architecture a new direction, you know, and a, and a, and a purpose that is about... Um, Yes, trying to align, listen to and align to um, ecology and its needs um, and really tune into that. So for us now, every project begins with looking at the landscape and trying to understand what, what it needs um, and then what that might mean in, in terms of kind of co-outputs. Um, we believe in um, the ability of humans to live, to coexist with other species and to, to design and manage living systems that are really um, uh, healthy but also productive. Uh, we're not, we don't sit in the kind of rewilding camp, or at least that doesn't 
feel like a realistic way forward given the number of people that there are in this country and the and the demand that, that there is going to need to be on on the land that we have. Um, and humans have lived for many, many centuries in kind of this managed coexistence with, with other species um, and in a very, in very sustainably. It's only really in the last hundred years that it's gone out so far out of kilter. Um, so I think that's, yeah, that's the project of the work that we do. And <laughs> yeah, in the way, the deeper we go, the further away we get from the mainstream. Um, but maybe you do just leave that to Kingsman. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and find out where we can be useful on the edges, you know. Um, but it's, a, yeah, as I said, that's a kind of ongoing question for us, like where, where we should sit. Um, we're also working on large, large development projects. So we're involved in a, in a 700 home development in, in the south of England. Um, Is that the Phoenix project? The Phoenix project, yeah, in Lewis. Love that. Um, I'm so excited about that. Yeah, it's such Please, a... Please, yeah, tell us, tell us more about it. Yeah, it's an amazing and incredibly ambitious um, development project that's been run or led by uh, an organisation called Human Nature Places, who are a developer, but very unconventional developer, um, in that they have just come with a set of really progressive ideas Um and they've managed to um, bring the entire, well, not the entire, but a large proportion of the community of Lewis along with them um, on the journey of working out what that site might be. And um, 10 years ago, or around 10 years ago, there were massive protests in Lewis against the, uh, a kind of former iteration of the very different developer version of this development and then a month ago there were public protests in favor of the um the proposals going through planning which was you know extraordinary i've, I've never seen a protest in favor of a development <laughs> unheard of <Yeah. laughs> um so yeah, it's a really exciting project. There's so many elements to it. There's um, uh, there's no private car use on site. Um, it's a very large area. Um, there's a depot from which you collect your post. Um, you know, rather than it being distributed uh, very inefficiently to every door. Um, there is a real mix of of, of housing and working places and healthcare uh, and other community um, or local and social infrastructure, which often, again, doesn't accompany development. Um, and then the work that we're doing is to design 70 units, uh, residential units. Um, and we are looking to work with 
exclusively timber from the region, from, um, from the southeast, and from effectively, potentially from the kind of valleys around the um, around this. And then we are also hoping to work with with hempcrete, but the idea is to use the, use the site itself as a as a kind of micro factory. So there, it was an industrial site, so there are a lot of large sheds, and we would convert a couple of those into small production facilities in which we would prefabricate components for the buildings. Brilliant. Oh. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. All right. Thank you, Paloma. That was brilliant. I don't know if you can hear outside. But there's a big old storm raging in the UK right now. And I am sheltering under a little pile of sofa cushions, trying to create the most deadened sound area. So there's a, a fun image for you. There's a towel draped over my head. <laughs> um, so what did I want to say? Oh, the, the cultural shift around lifting. So I, I brought up the sheets of ply because on the job I'm on at the moment, we just had a delivery of sheets of ply. And there was a... A delivery guy who was anxious to get off and you know we just needed to get stuff inside the weather wasn't great and so we just kind of hauled them in on our own sheets of 18 mil ply and it's funny because so when I was running Heartwin um for those that don't know we'd get a, a group of 10 people that might not have ever been on a work site before um usually usually not uh, and we would build a whole house with them from foundations right through to finishes and so part of that was instilling really good worksite culture. And one of the things I'm most proud of, actually, is is a thing we just called lifting friends. And that was whenever you had to carry a, a sheet of ply or uh, a bucket full of uh, mix, you could just you know look up and say, can I get a lifting friend? And someone would be there to help you. 
And we didn't have anyone hauling stuff around on their own or hurting the backs or anything like that. And it was a really simple thing to instill in people who were learning it for the first time. And it was so, so second nature to everyone, um, including myself, although I didn't learn. <laughs> I didn't learn that uh, when I was first on building sites. So it's interesting that now I'm I'm back sort of running my own jobs, working with just me and uh, and Mike, who you'll know from the, the Christmas podcast. Uh, yeah, how when you're not looking after a group's well-being, it um, it can sometimes slip a little bit. Yeah, a good reminder to uh, to look after ourselves. Um, so that's uh, lifting. I've, I've wanted to tell you just a, a little story about a faux pas that I made. I like to think of myself as a, a pretty knowledgeable guy in terms of natural building product. I know sort of the good ones uh, and you know the slightly questionable ones that we that we were okay with because there's nothing really better um there's a product called wood wool board and it's uh, sort of like looks like strips of paper it's a dark gray it's a meter by half a meter small small panels and you screw them to the wall and then you can plaster on top of them now the issue with these boards is that where two boards join if it joins on a, an unsupported area then it, you get a little bit of flex and that tends to come through the plaster and cause a crack now normally we deal with this by just having timbers behind all of our uh, joins sizing everything so it's um so it's the boards are supported and this uses you know a bit more timber and is a bit more work um i had seen on a site i was doing a floor on that someone had used a little bit of glue between the boards and I thought, oh, that's interesting. Uh, and when I ordered my next batch of those, um, the wood wall boards, I specified some of the glue. And when we were putting the boards up, I sprayed around the edges. It comes in a little sort of squeezy tube thing. I sprayed it in around the edges. We fixed our boards up. And we sort of did a whole wall. Didn't really think too much of it. And then started doing another wall. And it was then I turned back and looked at our first wall. And uh, all of that spray had kind of ballooned up and it became very evident that I had just used spray foam to stick my boards together. And regular listeners will know that spray foam is pretty much the, the antithesis of natural building. It's the thing that, that is usually used as a sort of joke when... When we're trying to find the right solution, it's always, you know, just spray foam it. Ha ha ha, we'd never do that. Imagine how upset I was with myself when I realised I'd just used spray foam on these boards. And I hadn't even realised. It was actually the first time I've ever used spray foam. Um, uh, yeah, it was, that's why I didn't pick up on it. So yes, uh, Jeffrey, the spray foam builder, will be my new website. Ugh. I and mean, it just goes to show that you just need to be really on it when you're looking at materials. Um, I did, I talked to Will Stanix about the using of that material. He did rationalise that there's less wastage because we didn't have to cut boards to be over. Over the, the, the timbers. Yeah, there is a point to that, I guess, but it doesn't feel good. So there you go. Maybe I have made that mistake so you don't have to. Um, right uh, that's the end of story time uh, link 
links. Uh, there are loads of links in the show notes. Um, where there is a link to Will Stanix, he got a mention. Uh, he's actually going to be on a podcast very soon. We record an episode in a fantastic barn project that he's been doing. As links to the building sustainability episodes with George and Summer. Uh, there is uh, the magnesium oxide. There's uh, a link to a page about that. Um, material cultures make uh, indie nature hemp bats. Uh, I love those bats. Um, use those on our project before I spray foamed them. <laughs> um, uh, there is a link to the Tom Tom Woolley's book. Uh, yeah, that's a fantastic book. Uh, Natural Building Techniques, a guide to ecological methods and materials. A link to Styco uh, and a link to the Phoenix Project, the Human Nature Places. Fantastic project down in Lewis. Oh, a reminder. There is a reminder to subscribe if this is your first episode. If you're looking to sell, for something to listen to next, I'd head on over to the episode with George and Summer about hemp building. Please do share this episode. It takes a, just a couple of seconds to share it via WhatsApp or your favorite social media. Um, yeah, it's really, really appreciated. And if you really appreciate this podcast, find it useful, entertaining or something else that I couldn't think of, then please do consider supporting via the Patreon. Uh, that is patreon.com forward slash building sustainability. There's a link in the show notes. It helps me out so, so much. And you get bonus episodes and little snippets from different guests. Uh, so up at around uh, 10 or 11 hours worth now. Okay, uh, that is it from me. Uh, I think the next episode with Paloma rolls kind of right on from this. So uh, some of the, the sort of themes are continued. Um, it will stand alone if uh, you can't listen now. Uh, it's only about half an hour. Um, so enjoy that if you're going straight on. Otherwise, if you're leaving us now, have a safe day. Have a lovely day. I hope you're enjoying just that little bit more sunlight every day. It's definitely making me feel um, feel pretty happy that spring's on the way. Uh, and the snowdrops, are uh, they're out, which is definitely a little signal that spring is on the way. Okay, that's it for me. Until next time, bye-bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.